0: Andrew, I have been so excited about this week's episode. It was like, I, I mean, I loved the other guests, but this was like really <laughs> one of my favorite conversations. Uh,
1: I am—I was so excited about this. i th- This is my dream interview, I must confess.
0: And I'm wondering if, you know, really, do you think it's fate or maybe a tiny bit of luck that this conversation with Jill Charter is coming out? Really, basically, at the same time that the new decadal survey—I mean, it's—it's it's entitled "Origins, Worlds, and Life: A Decadal Strategy for Planetary Science and Astrobiology." I mean, we like.
1: Beat oh, you the know, presses. we planned it. You know, we planned <laughs> this, Katie. I mean, we, we, we coordinated with the National Academies. We made sure we everything was lined up. No, of course we didn't. But it's a great coincidence.
0: Well, it certainly this it made me think. Uh, it made me think bigger because we're going to, you know Planets we haven't gone to in a big way before. And that's led to a lot of jokes online
1: about one planet in particular, but we don't need to go there. But I'll tell you the thing that struck me reading through this, and I, okay, it amazes me how little we know about our solar system still and how much richness there is. with what we can discover, not only because it's really cool stuff, but because it tells us something about the planet we're actually living on as well. So I was really excited reading through this.
0: We should explain that basically what happens every 10 years, it's a decade also, a decade of survey, every 10 years, and they convene a committee of leading planetary scientists to write this report. And it reflects their consensus. I mean, that's a big word, meaning, can you believe that they got all these people to agree? And But it's about, I mean, in a serious way, the, the most important scientific questions facing the community and a prioritized list of missions to answer those questions.
1: Right, and this is where it gets so exciting because you have all of these people that are looking at the future of humans in space and space exploration, coming up with this strategic plan, if you like, of what we would like to do or what we're gonna do over the next 10 years.
0: I'm Katie Coleman.
1: I'm Andrew Maynard.
0: Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we are asking Are we done searching for intelligent life?
1: And so I I love the way you say that. There probably should be an intelligent life in space there, Um, unless we really think that intelligent life on Earth is done for.
0: Well, I was uh, I was thinking the same thing. You know, maybe we should be more specific.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. Are we done looking for intelligent life in space? I guess, the solar system in the galaxy, in the universe? Um, I hope there is, but I don't know. But I don't care because that imagination, just thinking about the possibility, opens up new realms of things that we can do and be, which is beyond the, the lives that we live at the moment. And that's what blows me away here. And that's what really grabbed me with this conversation.
0: Well, hey, Andrew, it is time for weekly obsessions. It is. Annette. this is the last episode of the season, and I am, as usual, fearful, (laughs) trepidatious.
1: Go for it. actually, Actually, this week's obsession fits in very well with our conversation with Jill, and it's hope. A little over a week ago, as we're recording in Earth Week, I was moderating a panel and we were talking about hope for the future. And I started off the panel reading the introduction from my book, Future Rising, the one that you wrote that beautiful preface for or forward for, Katie. Well, it's
0: a beautiful book, Andrew. Thank it you. It really uh, is.
1: But that opening, I basically ask the question, is there any hope? We seem to be living in a world that's falling apart. And the crazy thing is that between writing that and now, we've had the pandemic, we've got a war between Russia and Ukraine, we've got a whole load of crazy stuff happening, and it sometimes feels like the world is in a hopeless place. And yet, even though we have this current situation – it's amazing to me where you see these little rays of hope in what we're capable of, and what we do, and what we can imagine the future to be like. So this has really been sort of on my mind over this last few days after that session, where we started off thinking about how hopeless the world seems, and then thinking about what we can do to build hope for the future.
0: Andrew, I love that because it can be confusing, especially in these you know tough times yes. where we look at. I mean, in, and I, I don't know. In a way, going back to data. It gives me hope, you know, data and actually just finer and finer, almost eyes or, you know, different instruments, right. the fact that we can learn new things when we literally have, you know, newer eyes to, to look at the look at the universe with. That right. gives me hope as well.
1: I, I love that. And when you combine that with what we're capable of, not only what we're capable of imagining, but what we're capable of doing. And to me, the really compelling thing here is that as a species, and as individuals, if we make the effort, we're capable of not only imagining better futures, but actually working together to build them, if only we decide we're going to do that.
0: I think that we should keep you along on this journey, Andrew.
1: That's what I think. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. But we should talk about your obsession. So what have you been obsessing about this week? The
0: importance of coffee and exploration.
1: Yes. Actually, I, mean, I can't. Okay. We, We've talked about I, coffee before, but yes.
0: I was with a bunch of really interesting folks last week kind of surveying new space and what's going on and they came from all these different fields everything from financial to technical i mean there were there are physics people like you andrew um, there were authors like you too um, but from you know all sorts of different walks of life there was 40 of them mm-hmm. it was these really honest discussions about you know what's what does this mean what could it mean what could we do to take bigger steps this was the the X foundation oh, right. looking for yes. new challenges and yet You know, these people who are so smart all in their different ways are still very human and the importance of coffee on our (laughs) mission was clear. The thing that sets the right tone for your day or the middle of your day or is the way you sit down and brainstorm with people. I mean, for me, that's coffee. So, and here at Intermission Interplanetary, it is the official
1: beverage. And I love the fact that we've talked so much about food and space over this season. This seems to be a fitting way of, of rounding up these, these discussions before we get into the big questions. So the big question, of course, is, are we done searching for intelligent life beyond Earth?
0: If you're a regular listener to this podcast, and we hope you are, you know that we focus on the big questions around space and space exploration.
1: Perhaps the biggest of big questions is, are we alone? Are we alone in the unbelievably vast universe, or is there other intelligent life out there? The question is more than grist for science fiction. It offers a profoundly existential, philosophical, and for some, even religious challenge.
0: The modern search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI, S-E-T-I, began in the 1960s. Expanding during the 70s, it eventually led to the founding of the SETI Institute in 1984. And among the institute's many efforts, they partnered with the University of California at Berkeley to construct the Allen Telescope Array, an enormous array of radio telescopes in Northern California that scans the cosmos for signs of intelligent life.
1: But in recent years, much of the energy in the scientific community has focused on the search for non-intelligent life. We've got the Mars Perseverance rover taking samples of the Martian soil to look for signs of life. There's buzz that Saturn's moon Enceladus or Jupiter's Europa may contain life in subsurface oceans. Some scientists speculate that Venus may even feature life in its dense upper atmosphere.
0: And that's just in our solar system. The explosion of newly discovered exoplanets has led to vigorous efforts to better understand biosignatures so that future technologies might be able to help us determine whether these distant worlds harbor life.
1: But all of these efforts seem to focus on primitive microbial life or signs of past life like this. So where does that leave the search for intelligent life?
0: To get answers, we reached out to none other than astronomer Jill Tarter. Jill is a legendary pioneer in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. She's one of the founders of the SETI Institute and currently chair emeritus for SETI Research. In 2004, Time magazine named Jill one of the 100 most influential people in the world.
1: Her awards, honors, and achievements are just too numerous to list here. But she's most popularly known as the inspiration for Jodie Foster's character in that 1997 film, Contact.
0: We can think of no one better to talk to about the current state of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Jill Tarter, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. It's great to be here
1: being a physicist i remember the the time when i was an undergraduate where the understanding of the sheer enormous distances in space went from an intellectual thing to something that was visceral and actually meant something emotionally. And I was watching one of your talks where you capture exactly that moment. And it was amazing sort of all these decades later having the same feeling as you begin to sort of see the vastness of space compared to sort of our life here.
2: Yeah, we actually tend to get so focused on us and our world and we, we lose the context for right. where we are and when we are in this vast universe. And I think it's important to expand our horizons and understand exactly how we fit in. And, and the, the big question is whether we're alone. And right. you know, to try and answer that question without appreciating how enormous uh, a search might be in order to to get the answer, and you know that's even assuming that we're looking or searching in the right way. That there isn't right. some technology that we haven't yet invented. We don't yet physics. We don't yet understand that in fact would say, well, don't look this way, look that way. So we've got a span of. 50, 60 years that we've been at this. Yet the amount of observational space, the, the number of parameters that we've been able to investigate is so small. It's, it's right.
0: dauntingly small. Actually, what really worked for me was the glass of water analogy, where it was about where we've looked already. You could take all the water in the ocean and take a single cup full. And if you didn't end up finding a fish in that cup, You'd never think of concluding, well, there are no fish in the ocean.
2: Right, right. But it's always hard to ask for funding and to improve your searching capability on the basis of past failure, right? It's just psychologically (laughs) difficult to go and say, "Ah, I'm going to build this new instrument and it's going to do X, Y, Z. And they say to you, well, I mean, what happened with the last instrument that you built, right? <laughs> it didn't prove
0: anything. Well, and that's where today we we were thinking of asking you, basically, do you think it's now there's some competition with the search for biological life? You know, because we've seen uh, the Mars missions, Perseverance, you know, looking for life on Mars, new missions planned for Venus. So I wondered... In our efforts to search for biosignatures there, where does that leave the search for intelligent life?
2: Well, I think that searching for biosignatures and searching for technosignatures, they both Mm -hmm. fit under the same umbrella of a science we call astrobiology. And the thing about technosignatures is that it's potentially possible to find them farther away from Earth than we can as we look for biosignatures, because technology can put some gain into the system. Whereas when you're looking for biosignatures, you're really looking for close to home for places that we can currently reach. Technosignatures might, in fact, be coming from the other end of the galaxy.
1: So can you say a little bit, Jill, about what's a technosignature is what exactly are we looking for
2: well what we're looking for is evidence of somebody else's technology evidence right. that somebody else has modified their environment in a way that we can detect at remote distances and we hmm. don't know whether that entity is biological or machine-based at this point but just something that gives us an idea of a phenomena that, as far as we know, nature can't produce. What we have done primarily is look for electromagnetic signals. right? And Mm. of that, we've done more searching in the radio because we built those tools earlier on. But now we're looking in the optical, and we're looking for both frequency compression and Mm. time compression. We're looking for a signal that shows up at one channel on the radio dial and none of the surrounding channels. When you look at emission from astrophysical sources, the feature spreads out in frequency because of Doppler effects, but yet we know how to make a single tone. We have Mm -hmm. lasers in the optical, right, monochromatic, and we can do that in the radio as well with technology, but nature doesn't. So that's the kind of thing we're looking for. It's the, oh, wow, what's that, (laughs) right? That shouldn't be there. And and, uh, then trying to do all kinds of other uh, investigations to make sure that What we think is an artificial signal coming from space is really an artificial signal coming from space and not from our own technologies.
1: And I guess that that's that's a big deal because we've created a really noisy environment around this planet.
2: Yeah, we have. And so the amount of computing that needs to go into trying to distinguish interference, light pollution, from the thing we're actually searching for is increasing with time. And we hope to be able to use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies to help us in this quest, because it's really noisy out there.
0: And I'd heard, Jill, that this is also a place where basically crowdsourcing might be helpful, because people could do it.
2: Over the years, we've done crowdsourcing and certainly SETI at home is probably right. uh, the most popular of the uh, citizen science projects that has ever been launched. And yep. I think it puts citizen science on the map.
1: Absolutely. The the thing that amazes me about SETI at home and I remember it. I back in the nineties. Did you do it? it did you oh, do it, of Andrew? course. It was on everybody's screen. And, and I remember the, those sort of times when you were watching the screensaver and you saw little blips and you thought, is this it? But it wasn't just people like me. I, my wife had it on her, her computer. Everybody had it on their computers. It was incredible.
2: But the, the thing that was special about the SETI is that we wanted to do it in near real time. So if you consider our search technologies having a cadence, you wanted to take data, And then in the next step, you wanted to reduce that data. And by the end of the second step, you wanted to know whether there was anything that you wanted to follow up on.
1: So I guess from what you're saying, it gives you the chance to really focus on a signal that you think might be important, rather than it just sort of getting lost in the long queue of everything else that you're looking for.
2: Right, right. And because, like everything else, interference is time variable. Um, right. If you're going to figure out that it's a signal coming in the side lobes of your telescope, you want to do it while that signal is still there, right? So from the beginning, what we did is we asked, do you see this particular pattern in frequency and time in that data? So again, it's this pre-thinking, what does a technology look like that isn't what Mother Nature looks like? But now we're hopeful that with machine learning, we don't have to make that predetermination. We don't have to restrict our searching for a particular pattern, but we can perhaps just ask a very fancy network, neural network, is there any information content in this data? And of course, the the real challenge with that is... The training of the network, because you have to say. be able to expose it to a null set. Something that you know has no information content. And that's the hard thing to to create, because at I, I some level, you know, you're going to put in an artifact.
1: Right. Presumably, it's, it's more than just information. Because, say, your training set was just the natural world around us. The, there's information there, but it doesn't fall into the sort of category of intelligent information that I guess you're looking for. So, is there a degree of sophistication there where you're trying to train the algorithms to look for non-natural anomalies within this information flow?
2: Yeah, well, that's the ideal, um, yeah. and getting smart enough to do that.
1: So, how close are we? Yeah, are people we are closer? starting to do
2: that. Uh, okay. Again, it's, it's being done in a way that's non-real-time, right? Large right. data sets that are looked at by machine algorithms. That's That's been less of an interest for me because I really want... <laughs> When something's mm. there, right? When something's found, I want to be able to follow up on it.
1: You, you, you could have a another generation of SETI at home, except instead of having people on the other end watching their screens, you co-opt everybody's phone, everybody's tablet, everybody's computer, everybody's Internet of Things device, refrigerators, whatever. So you have all of those chips in real time processing the data.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Makes waiting in line a lot more interesting. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I think there's a lot of progress that can be made here. So it's exoplanets and extremophiles have opened our, uh, our minds to uh, possibilities that we didn't appreciate before. And now we need to use um, these extra floating point operations that are just s- sitting around yep. to yep. do the job.
0: So, so how does the discovery of extremophiles down here affect how you would then look for intelligent life out well, there?
2: For example, um, we initially, when we were making lists of here's good target stars to explore, we excluded M-dwarfs, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason being that a planet that would be at the right temperature to be, quote unquote, habitable, would be so close to an M dwarf that it would be tidally locked. And we just didn't think that if you had one hot side and one cold side, that it would be a very clement place to live. And now that we've learned some more about the atmospheres of these bodies, we can understand that there are ways to transfer heat from the hot to the the cold. And that they might, in fact, turn out to be habitable. So we've taken that blinker off, which opens up your target list enormously because most stars are in dwarfs, right? So as we learn more, we can be less biased, less siloed. And extremophiles, who would have thought that there could be organisms In the vicinity of black smokers at the bottom of the ocean, which managed to absorb one photon every half hour or so and make a living out of that. Well, nature's had billions of years to experiment with different ways of making a living other than us. And so we're getting less human-centric in our exploration.
0: So. Jill, I, I have a friend, she's an astrophysicist who deals in dark matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is uh, Katie Mack, and she wrote a book called The End of Everything. And and I said, so if you could ask Jill any question that you wanted, what would you ask? And, and she said, well, I, I would really love to know, you know, how she approaches a field of study that hasn't produced a detection yet, because as a dark matter physicist, that is me too. And and she wanted to know how you would design a search strategy and and how you approach presenting this kind of very daunting search to make it important to others.
2: Well, in fact, I actually had that that challenge when I was doing my PhD, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the time, we had what we called the missing mass problem. So we looked at the velocities of stars and clouds of gas at the edge of our galaxy, and they seem to be moving faster than could be accounted for gravitationally by adding up the masses of all the stars and molecules and atoms in the galaxy that we could observe. So what was this missing mass? Now it's dark matter but at the time we called it missing mass and so my thesis was dreaming up these tiny little stars that were massive enough to collapse under their own gravitational force but not massive enough to get hot enough at their cores to stably burn hydrogen to helium and make a living so I ended up calling them brown dwarfs because, Mm -hmm. according to Edmund Land, brown is not a color. And our opacity tables at the time were so awful that I couldn't fit an atmosphere onto these things and get a color. So I could tell astronomers, here, look in this part of the spectrum to find these. And indeed, it took took 25 years before we found the first one. Mm -hmm. But it was coming up with just scratch your head. uh, What's going on here? Trying to find an innovative solution to something that just didn't make sense. And sometimes it's nonsense, but sometimes it turns out illuminating something that actually turns out to be real when you get the tools, the right tools to look for.
1: So going back to that PhD thesis and your work that came after it, how did you convince people that this was worthwhile being so far ahead of your time in terms of hypothesizing about brown dwarfs before they'd actually been discovered?
2: Well, what, we, what, what I had to do was write a lot of papers that say, look, this is a crazy idea, but given what we have observed of a physical universe, we can't rule it out. We can't say it's mm-hmm. impossible. We just have not searched well enough To be able to say, no, you can't have anything like a brown dwarf, of course not. Uh, And that's where we are with SETI. It's this whole idea that, as far as we know, the parameter space for discovery is nine-dimensional. And when we put limits on um, how big each of those dimensions might be, and this is, this is excluding the 11-dimensional particle physics, right. but just your four-dimensional universe, you put limits on the dimensions and you say, okay, this is a huge, vast search space. Let's, uh, for an, an analogy's sake, let's set that search space volume equal to the volume of all the world's oceans and how much have we searched? And you come up with one glass? Huh. Right. Yeah, right. you got a lot
1: more work to do. So- Jill, I want to um, come back to extraterrestrial intelligence specifically. And of course, you know, there are lots of conversations around surely in a universe this big, there's got to be gazillions of intelligence, uh, intelligence of life or intelligent beings. And yet we don't see any evidence. So that gets to the the Fermi paradox where it seems strange that we haven't seen any evidence of this. But then there are other theories that suggest that maybe there's an evolutionary... imperative where it, it, or intelligent beings always destroy themselves before they get to that point where they can really sort of emit these signatures. Where do you lie? Do you think that intelligent life is out there somewhere and we just aren't looking hard enough? Or do you think that this is just something that inspires us to be better humans irrespective of, of what is out there?
2: You know, in physics, we have a way of counting. And we count one to infinity. Right. So when you only have a single example of a phenomenon, it might be that it is unique. But -hmm. the moment you find a second example, then you know there will be many. And so that's where we are in SETI. Number two is the all important number. And yeah, I, I kind of have this thought about the distribution of technologies and age and I think it might be a bimodal distribution so I think Mm -hmm. there might be lots of young technologies right, that don't ever get old for any number of reasons but then I think there might be a second peak which has somehow gotten through some or over some threshold and right. that become essentially infinite in age right and i and i wonder if if i'm right about this bimodal distribution lots of young lot fewer old but infinitely old mhm yep perhaps the way to get through that transition is to discover another intelligent civilization So that you Mm -hmm. understand that you might not have the answer to how to do it, but you understand that somebody else did it. So there is a way, and it might be inspiring um, for you to find that way.
1: I I love that idea. So then effectively you're looking at at celestial networks of civilizations that have helped each other get through that gap.
2: Yeah. And again, you have or we don't actually have any way of knowing whether the long-lived civilizations are biological or
1: machine right. right right
2: so we live in a galaxy that's 10 billion years old and most of the stars in the vicinity of the milky way where we reside are about a billion years on average older than the earth and the sun. So we are a very young technology in a very old universe. And so when you talk about young versus old, um, that's the timescale that you're talking about. So I, I can imagine that there are technological civilizations that could be many billions of years old. Arthur Clarke, once said that any significantly advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. And more recently, a philosopher, Schroeder, I can't remember his first name, I'm sorry, has said that any sufficiently uh, advanced technology would be indistinguishable from nature because they would have had to solve the problems of sustainability and maintaining themselves over very long timescales.
1: Of course, that that is counter to you looking for the non-natural signals, which really throws say. a wrench in the works.
2: Yeah, except here, here's an example, though. So right. we can't, we, there's this wonderful system called the TRAPPIST-1 system of seven mm. Earth-sized planets orbiting a small M-dwarf star.
0: These are the exoplanets, right?
2: Yes, these are exoplanets. And we can't, we can't see them yet. We don't have technology that will allow us to actually image those individual exoplanets. But when we get the capability to do that, each of those planets are a different distance from their star. So they should be at different equilibrium temperatures and their atmospheric components will be, um, mediated by their equilibrium temperature but suppose one day we get to image those planets and we see that two of them are identical right they shouldn't be because nature would have made them um have a different equilibrium temperature but suppose two of them are absolutely identical what are you gonna think right Mm -hmm. this is natural, but it's not natural. So you might consider the fact that a technological civilization evolved on one of those planets, and it wanted some more habitable real estate. So it hopped over to the nearest neighbor and transformed it to be more to their liking.
0: So So Jill, I was going to ask you if you were still hopeful that we would successful in our search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But on the day that that happens, what are you worried that, that the newspaper would say? And what do you hope that it would say? Well, I hope
2: that the headlines would say, we share this universe with other technologically capable beings. And what I fear that might happen is the fact that it might create a new category of haves and have-nots. Because if the signal or the evidence, whatever it is, is coming from a very high or a very low latitude, there will be countries that have real estate where they can build telescopes and detectors that can see this signal. But if it's coming from a direction near the North Pole, all those countries in the South that don't have real estate, that have visibility, um, are going to be dependent on information being uh, transmitted from those that can see this location on, on the um, sky. and And I just... I worry that we're so contentious still, we're so we're bickering, right, about so many things. And of course, right now, horribly, the the conflict in Ukraine, um, that, that we will just have yet one more reason not to trust one another, right? And so I don't like the idea that we could possibly create a new, Set of
0: dissensions. I like to think that by the time this happens, a lot of people will have spent time not on the Earth and bringing back their their many individual perspectives. It's just hard to believe that these differences could be in any way important when you look at things from far away and look back at the Earth and realize that that you know we are all Earthlings. And I'm hoping that in the future we'll have people will have that perspective to maybe. Counter some of the things that that you that you mentioned.
2: I, I like that thought, but but then I watch the news and I see what's. We're going to put Russians and Ukrainians in that same crew. Yeah, I hope we can, but it's we have to change. We have to get over the predator-prey kind of evolutionary behavior that probably helped us ratchet up and get smarter over time. We have to outgrow that.
1: We have to actually that. have that earthling perspective. On that note, that's a bit of a cliffhanger. It's definitely not a comfortable place to end, but it's a really important place to end. Jill, we've got to have you back to continue this conversation. Thank you so much. This has been brilliant and enlightening and intriguing. Jill Tarter, it's been wonderful having you as our guest.
0: Oh, it's been Thank my pleasure. So Thanks so much, Jill.
1: into planetary. we can't show you what space looks like. You'll just have to use your imagination.
0: But we can share what space sounds like.
1: This is Sounds of Space. Okay, Katie. so...
0: We what know was that, that we know that teenagers have made it to the edge of the universe. Okay, Explain because there's more. a lot of there's a lot of bass going on, and shock, shockingly, they are willing to wash their own clothes. Because I I definitely heard a washing machine
1: <laughs> going no, these on are there. Not, no. these, these are not teenagers, believe me. If they're washing well, clothes at the edge of the universe,
0: um, everybody is happy at the edge of the universe. Okay, so, I have no okay. idea what that was. I was
1: going to say. I was going to say, admit it, Katie. You have no idea what you're listening to, but that was great. None. So let me tell you. This, this is one of the coolest sounds we've had. That was the sound of heartbeat stars. And I can't believe I'm even saying that. I'm sitting here with a huge grin on my face. Heartbeat stars are binary stars, systems of two stars that orbit one another. When they're at the closest point in their elliptical orbit, the gravitational force the stars exert on one another actually deforms them, stretching them out into oval shapes. And I can't even get my head around this. You've got a whole star that's being stretched out. Um, And it makes them appear suddenly brighter or dimmer. And they're called heartbeat stars because their change in brightness over time forms a pattern resembling an electrocardiogram or a graph of the electrical activity of the heart. The signal from these stars detected by the Kepler Space Telescope was sped up by two million times, so quite a lot. And the pitch was increased by 23 octaves to bring it within audible range. This recording comes to us from the great folks at System Sounds, and it just blows me away. That was the heartbeat of binary star systems.
0: Well, and I, I love that actually listening to it and thinking about it after you explain that, you know, helps me understand, you know, what a binary star system might look like and act like. So it's it's really cool. I I think we should send this right away to the annual, you know, convention of cardiac surgeon people because they are really going (laughs)
1: to like this. Well, to see whether they can diagnose anything. But actually, I hadn't even thought about this. It makes you wonder, could we diagnose something about the state of the heart within these galaxies or within these binary systems? I bet we could. I bet there are physicists out there listening to this and thinking, yeah, that little blip there indicates there's something a little wonky going on. But at the end of the day, I just love this idea that we have these beating hearts in the galaxy that we live within. Let's listen to that again. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: And it is our final episode of season two.
1: This is such a bittersweet moment. I have loved this series.
0: Well, we have gone on a lot of different journeys and I'm I'm hoping this has happened to folks that listen, I definitely feel changed, you know, from the beginning of the season. I
1: I do as well. I, I learned so much from these conversations.
0: Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Check
1: back with us. We're planning to release some bonus content in the near future, and you do not want to miss it.
0: And we will be looking for your suggestions about what you'd like to hear about and learn about in season three. So write to us at our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU. Send us a tweet, a comment, a question. We will respond. And please recommend us to your friends and your family. That would be awesome, and I think they'd like it.
1: Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez.
0: Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative.
1: We have had so much fun this season.
0: We really did.
1: And we'll be back with season three, asking the big questions about space exploration.
0: The future is interplanetary.
1: We'll see you there.